So for those of you who are new to us, I'm just going to recap a little bit about where we've been and, and where we're going as I lead into this sermon. But first, I want you to think about what comes into your mind when I say the phrase, popping the question. Popping the question. For those of you who are married in this room, that probably, you know, we think about the most important question that's ever been asked in your mind that might be either when you asked someone to marry you or when uh, someone asked you to marry them. When the question was popped, it was a very important question. The answer to that question changed everything. And in this sermon, we are going to look at, a, at an example of when Jesus pops a very important question. So you can just hold on to that as we're, as we're leading into the series. Uh, what we're doing in this series, we have been looking at uh, Jesus from the, the Gospel of Luke because we talked about to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to become like Christ. And so we're, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke because we want to know what Christ was like. If we want to follow him, we have to know what he was like, what he was about, what he did, what he taught. And so we're doing this big series called Follow Me, a fresh look at Jesus and the movement he began. Within that bigger series, we've done a, a number of smaller mini-series. Uh, the, the one we're doing now is called Join Me, because as you read through the Gospel of Luke, around chapter 9, you see that there's a shift sort of in Jesus' disciples. They go from being spectators and observers to being uh, participants in what he's doing. Jesus invites them to join him in his mission. And so today we're going to look at Jesus as he describes what it means to follow him, what's involved in following him, and he, he pops a very, very important question. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as usual, I'll, go, I'll put the text up on the screen. Um, we're going to look at a, at a discourse that Jesus has here. We're going to sort of peer into a conversation, a private conversation he has with his closest followers. Uh, and we're going to see sort of what, in Jesus' mind, what it means to follow him and why it's so important. So Luke tells us how the conversation began. Luke says this, Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? In other words, Jesus was doing a little bit of reconnaissance. He wanted to know what was the word on the street regarding who he was. When he went around ministering and uh, healing people and teaching people, he wanted to know sort of the, the crowd's mentality. Who do people on the street say that I am? Um, and so he asked his disciples because uh, they, you know, they were out among the people from time to time. And so he wanted to sort of get the word on the street. You know, when, when people are talking about me, what kinds of things are they saying? Who do people say that I am? Luke gives us their uh, response here, says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So in other words, uh, these people are hearing Jesus and they're, they're associating the, the words that he's teaching and the things that he's doing with some of the great prophets. You know, John the Baptist had just recently been beheaded by Herod, um, Elijah, some of the other Old Testament prophets. And, and that sort of makes sense because if you look at the things that Jesus taught and you look at the things that he did and the miracles that he did, a lot of those are very, very similar to the prophets in what we would call the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, so it makes sense that these people would see what Jesus taught. His message was very similar. Um, the, the things that he did, the miracles that he did were very, very similar to the old prophets. So they're thinking, oh, well, it must be one of the prophets or, or the spirit of the prophets is, is with Jesus. He's one of the great prophets. Uh, but then Jesus, he takes this question from very broad, who do, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And he makes it very, very specific to his followers. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? 
So this, this is a big shift from who do they say that I am to who do you say that I am. And in the Greek, once again, the you is emphasized. Jesus is getting very, very personal with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? This really is the most important question any one of us will ever have to face. It's more important than who you're going to marry. It's more important than where you're going to go to school. It's more important than what job you're going to work. It's more important than any other question you're going to face. Who do you believe Jesus is? Because our answer to this question really can change everything. If we just believe that Jesus was just some good teacher, that he uh, had so, some good teachings about the, the way to live life and to be kind to one another, if we just believe that he was some teacher or some miracle worker, then we can take what we like from his teaching and apply that and mix it with the teaching of other good teachers throughout history and you know, sort of live a good life. But if Jesus is something more than that, if he's something more than just a good teacher and a miracle worker, if he's something more, then our answer to this question really can change everything. As we're going to see, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, then his authority over our life is much, much different than if he was just a good teacher. So this question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Really is the most important question you'll ever answer. Your answer to this question could change not only this life, but all of eternity when we decide who Jesus really is. So Luke tells us what happens next. Peter answers. Uh, and I just love Peter, right? Peter is just, he's so human. Uh, he's so bold. He's never, he's always afraid, uh, he's never afraid to raise his hand and, and give the answer. And sometimes, you know, he's, he's just, he's right on the money. And sometimes he is so far off base, it's not even funny. Um, but he, he's, he doesn't hesitate. He just, he sticks his neck out there. And I'm glad because now we get to learn from it, right? We can learn from the things that Peter did well. And we can learn from Peter's mistakes. And sometimes they were big mistakes. Uh, in this case, Peter gets it, he nails it right on the head. Peter answered, God's Messiah. Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Uh, you may know this. Messiah is the, the Hebrew word. Uh, the Greek word is Christos or Christ. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. Uh, it means anointed one, somebody who's anointed. Uh, in ancient times, the anointed one, there was usually uh, kings or priests who were anointed for a specific service for God. And so as we've talked about, in first century Judea, these, these ancient Jews, they were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting God to send them someone who would be anointed, this anointed king, really, who would lead Israel out from foreign oppression, and they would, this king who would make Israel great again, so to speak, who would cast off the Romans from uh, oppressing them, who would lead them to become great again, uh, they would once again be this independent kingdom ruled by God and God's king, so they're expecting this political military uh, deliverer, this Messiah who's going to come and, and rescue them. And so Peter here, he's demonstrating that he's finally starting to get it, right? Peter's finally starting to get it. And this is significant because up until this point, none of the things that Jesus had done looked very Messiah-like, right? The, the Jews are, are expecting this Messiah who's going to come in sort of on his white horse and, and build armies and lead this revolution and, and overthrow the, the Roman government. And instead, we see Jesus who, who comes and he teaches and he heals people and he hangs out with all the people that you're not supposed to as a Messiah. He hangs out with the tax collectors who are, you know, friends of Rome. He hangs out with all of the sinners and the outcasts. He even heals some Roman soldiers, right? The very enemy of, of the Hebrew people, if you're 
if you're a good God-fearing Jew in that time, you, you know, hanging out with the oppressors, ministering to the oppressors, none of the things that Jesus does up until this point looks anything like what they were expecting their Messiah to be like. So when Peter says, you, Jesus, are God's Messiah, he's demonstrating that he gets it. He's finally starting to catch on to this upside-down, paradoxical kingdom of God. Um, now, in one of the other gospel stories, uh, Jesus replies, Luke doesn't include this, in one of the other stories, Jesus replies and says, Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're not smart enough to, to pick, up, pick this up on your own. Uh, this must have, been, must have been revealed to you. Uh, but, I, you know, I, either way, Peter's finally, it's finally starting to click. It's finally starting to click that, that Jesus isn't just some good teacher. That he's not just some miracle worker who's talking about nice things and doing nice things for people, but he's something more than that. He is God's Messiah. He is the one that God has sent and anointed to be the Savior, Deliverer, and Lord of all. So Peter finally gets it right. Uh, so Jesus' next statement then probably causes a little bit of confusion. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. At which point we're kind of like, well, why not? Why shouldn't we go around, you know, proclaiming to, to the nation that the Messiah is here. Why, why don't we go around and say, guys, finally, that the Messiah has come. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? Well, the answer to that is precisely because he was not the kind of Messiah that everybody was expecting, right? Peter's beginning to get it, but, but the rest of the people, they're still not, they still can't grasp the idea that, that the Messiah isn't going to be this political military deliverer who's going to raise an army and overthrow, that he's going to do this upside-down type kingdom that, that, that overthrows not through power and authority and warfare, but through love and service and compassion. So he tells them not to tell anybody because he knows that the people won't get it. They're not ready yet to understand exactly what's going on and what Jesus as Messiah really, really means in this situation. Uh, there are other records in, in the gospel stories where when people start to get an idea of this, they, try to, they want to force him to be king, but, but not the kind of king that he came to be, the kind of king that they were expecting. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this just yet. And we're going to see in the next couple of verses exactly why this would have been so confusing. Luke tells us, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And so at this point, when the, when the disciples heard this, I can just imagine them being incredibly confused and bewildered at what Jesus was saying. Jesus here, um, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, sort of in third person. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus used to refer to himself. And it's a title that we, we see used in the Old Testament, and, and most scholars believe that he's borrowing this term from the book of Daniel. From the book of Daniel. There was a very specific image that, that good Bible-studying Jews would have had in their mind regarding uh, what the Son of Man would be. So here's, here's what the, the book of Daniel says about the Son of Man. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what people were expecting when they thought of the term Messiah, when they thought of the term Son of Man, this, this, this glorious king who's going to come in and he's going to just reestablish Israel and he's going to establish a dominion that never ends and a kingdom that's never destroyed and it's going to be characterized by authority, glory, and sovereign power. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and then he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, his disciples are saying, wait a second, what? Wait a second, what? Jesus, have, have you read Daniel? Do you understand? Like, the Son of Man doesn't suffer. The Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah conquers, right? The, the Son of Man, uh, Jesus goes on, uh, the Son of Man must, be, uh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So as Jesus goes through these things, you can just sort of imagine his disciples getting more and more perplexed. What do you mean you're going to suffer, Jesus? You just, you just said that you were the Messiah. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs cause the enemy of Israel to suffer. Messiahs aren't rejected. Messiahs are embraced and welcomed and loved by the people. Messiahs aren't killed. They are conquerors. What do you mean that you are going to suffer and be rejected and killed? And so at this point, they probably stopped listening. They probably never even heard Jesus say, and on the third day be raised to life. This would have been so shocking to them. And we know that they didn't because later on, you know, they were surprised when, when Jesus was raised to life again. They seem to have forgotten that in the mess. And uh, now this is particularly troublesome for them because they're following him, right? And so they sort of know in this particular culture that if, if the leader of a movement suffers and is rejected and killed, well, it's pretty likely that his followers are going to experience the same fate. So when Jesus says these things, when Jesus says, uh, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed, they're sort of thinking, well, if you're going to be uh, rejected and suffer and killed, what's going to happen to us? And so you know, they, they, you know, they probably stopped listening at this point, wondering, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? This is not the idea. You just said you were the Messiah, and now you're saying you're going to be suffered and be killed. This doesn't make any sense. So in light of that, it makes sense that Jesus said, don't tell anybody that he's the Messiah. They just wouldn't have understood uh, so then after telling them this, this shocking news that they had trouble wrapping their minds around, Jesus moves into something else, and he explains what it means to be a disciple. Luke tells us, he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must, and then he explains what is required in being a disciple. So at this point, you can just picture the disciples, you know, breaking out their, their pencil and their notepad or their quill and their scroll or their, you know, clay tablet and their stylus or whatever they used to take notes at that time, uh, writing in the dirt. You know, the, whoever wants to be my disciple, right, this means take out your notes and, and follow along. This is, this is really, really important. Um, so Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must... Whoever wants to be my disciple must simply pray the sinner's prayer and invite me into their hearts, attend church regularly, and tithe. Right? So, obviously, you know that that's not what it says in the text. You know that's not what Jesus said means to be the disciple. Those things in and of themselves are not bad, right? It, you know, it's not bad to um, pray the sinner's prayer. It's not bad to invite Jesus into your heart. It's not bad to attend church. It's not bad to tithe. These are all good things. But this isn't what it means to be a disciple. This is what it really says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's a little bit more involved than simply praying a prayer and inviting Jesus in and showing up on Sundays and get, putting a little money in the offering part, right? This, is, this requires a little bit more. This is a little bit more demanding than just, than just showing up and, and uh, 
being present once a week or twice a week. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, not just once, take up their cross daily and follow me. That's why we're doing this series. This is what it means to be a Christian. If we want to follow Jesus, to be a Christian means to be a disciple. If we want to be a disciple, it means we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. He goes on. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And so here we're beginning to see the paradoxical kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, then you need to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, they're going to save it. And so, we, you know, for so many Christians, Christianity is all about salvation, right? Have you been saved, brother? Have you been saved, sister? We talk about salvation all of the time. Jesus says, if you try to save your own life, if you try to save your own life, you're going to end up losing it. If you're trying to do it yourself, if, you, if you're trying to build your own life, you're going to end up losing it all anyway. But if you lose your life, for me, if you lose your life, if you give up your life, either in service, if you, if you give up control over your life, turn that over to me, then you're going to save it. Then you're really going to find your life. He goes on to say, if, if you gain the entire world, if you get all of the money, all of the world, all of the things, you get the dream job, the dream car, the dream house, all of these things, if you gain everything you want, and at the end of the day, you've lost your soul, what have you really gained? There's nothing. No matter how much you can accumulate, none of that is going to fill this, this need for purpose, this need for joy and happiness. All of the possessions, all of the money, all of the prestige in the world, you can gain the entire world and yet still lose your very self. I was reading an article just recently about how some of the most rich people in the world are some of the mis most miserable. They have everything. They have all of the money. They can buy whatever their hearts desire, and they are miserable. They have no peace, no joy, no comfort. They've lost themselves in the process of trying to build and save their own life. So I put this in my notes. I want, to, I want you to be able to read it verbatim. To deny ourselves is to give up control of our own lives. It's to stop asking, what do I want for my life? And to start asking, what does God want for my life? In doing so, we'll experience life like we've never imagined. This is the paradoxical kingdom of God. To deny ourselves means that we give up control. We give up control. We stop saying that I'm going to run my life. To deny myself means that I surrender control of my life over to Jesus. This is why it's so important, that question that I talked about earlier, when Jesus popped that question, right? Who do you say that I am? If Jesus is just some good teacher, then we're not going to surrender our lives to him. But if he is God's anointed king, then he's somebody that we deserve, that de deserves our allegiance and our lives. Now here's the thing. This is, I, I've told you over and over again, this, this sounds difficult, right? To deny yourself, it, yeah, that's a difficult process. It, it, it can be a painful process, right? To stop, to surrender control of our life, to say, God, it's not what I want, but it's what you want for me, to surrender that over and to really mean it, that can be painful. But Jesus says that if we do that, we're, he's going to save us. We're going to find a kind of life that we never, ever, ever imagined for ourselves. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and have it to the full. But in order to experience the life that God wants for us, in order to experience life to the full, sometimes that means that we have to give up our 
ideas of what life means, of what we want, and surrender ourselves. When we surrender ourselves, that's when we find it. This is what I talked about. It's the paradoxical kingdom of God. It's upside down. It's, it's turning ourselves over in order that we can find the kind of life that is best for us. And I, I, I'm really starting to understand this more that I've, now that I've become a parent. Uh, right? If I were to always give Madison, uh, for those of you who don't know Madison, she's 14 months old. Uh, if I were to give Madison what she wanted, whenever she wanted it, all of the time, she might think that's what's best for her. But as her father, I know that it would not be best for her to give her what she wants all of the time. There are certain times that she wants something that's not the best for her. And so withholding that from her, even though it makes her upset in the moment, it's best for her in the long run. And I really think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying, listen, I know you, and I know how, how deceitful your own heart can be, so I'm asking you to surrender that over, to, to pledge your allegiance to me, to let me take the reins of control in your life. And if you do that, if you trust me enough to do that, then I'm going to lead you into life that you've never imagined. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer. That doesn't mean that we won't reject, be rejected. That doesn't mean that we won't be killed. All of the things that happen to Jesus may happen to us. But in the process, we're going to find life like we've never imagined. We're going to experience peace that surpasses understanding. When, when the, the world, the circumstances of life are swirling around us, when we don't understand what's going on and, and why it's going on, we can have peace that surpasses understanding. We can have joy in the midst of trials and circumstances. Uh, we can have Love and comfort and understanding that we just wouldn't get any other way. This kind of life that we only get, this kind of purpose that we only get by first surrendering our life to Jesus. When we let go of control, this is what I mean by the paradox. When we let go of control of our own life, when we surrender that over to Jesus as Lord, that's when we can really begin to experience the kind of life that he has for us. I've told you this before. Sometimes God asks us to give up something good in order that we can have something better. To give up something good in order that we can have something better. So here's the question. Do you trust that Jesus knows best? Do you trust that Jesus knows best? Do you trust that giving up whatever it is that he may be asking you to give up at this particular moment, that, that surrendering the reins of control over your life will lead to a life that you can never imagine, a life filled with joy, a life filled with peace, a life filled with purpose, a life filled with hope. How much, what, what's the dollar value on unshakable peace? What's the dollar value on comfort? What's the dollar value on an unshakable hope? You can gain the whole world and miss out on these things. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to trust me. I know that you think that you know what's best for you, but you don't because sometimes your heart deceives you. That's what Jesus is saying. Our hearts are deceptive. So Jesus says, surrender. Submit. Give me control. Give me your allegiance. Turn your life over to me. Let me be in control. And if you do so, I will give you peace. I will give you comfort. I will give you hope. I will give you purpose. I will help you find the kind of life that you never imagined. Sometimes it might be painful, sometimes you might suffer, but in the end, you can be assured of eternity with me where there's no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain. I know what's best for you, Jesus says. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? So here's the bottom line. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then he is someone to whom we can entrust our lives. 
That's why this question is so important. That's why when Jesus says, who do you say that I am, your answer to that is the most important question you'll ever answer. If he's just some good teacher and some miracle worker, then you're not going to surrender your life to him. But if he is God's anointed king, if he is God's Messiah, then he deserves our allegiance, and he's somebody that we can entrust our lives. So I can't go through a, a, a message like this and not present the opportunity if there's someone in the room who has not yet surrendered your life over to Jesus. If there's somebody who you've been wrestling with this or you've been trying to have control over your own life, you've been, you've been gripping the reins of your own life and, uh, and afraid to give up control, to surrender over to him, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. If you've never done that before, if you want to place your, your allegiance in Jesus Christ for the first time, or, or if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've considered yourself a Christian, but you've realized that, uh, you know, I've never really surrendered, I've never really given my life over to let Jesus be in control, to, to follow his ways, even when it doesn't make sense, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Uh, so if that's something that you want to do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this prayer, and you can say it along with me. Uh, this prayer in and of itself won't do anything. This is the first step. This is just a, a, a step of commitment uh, in the right direction. Again, you know, just simply saying a prayer isn't enough. This is the first step. But I want, you to, I want to invite you to say this prayer along with me. Heavenly Father, I want the life that you have planned for me. even if that means giving up the life I've planned for myself. Father, I trust that Jesus is your anointed king. And I surrender myself to him. Father, I give up my life so that you can save it. Father, fill me with your spirit. Empower me to follow your son wherever he leads. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer along with me for the first time, or maybe uh, you've thought you were a Christian for a while and realized that you'd not yet surrendered if you need to talk, um, you can find me afterwards. You can fill out one of these connection cards. We want to get you connected. Again, this is just the first step. Uh, for those of you who have been Christ followers for a while, again, this is an ongoing process. Discipleship is a lifelong process. We don't ever get to stop. Uh, we don't deny ourselves. It's not a one-time denial. It's a taking up our cross daily. That's, it's what, what it means to be a Christian. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you once again for preserving the words of Jesus in this text. We know that this isn't necessarily easy uh, to deny ourselves, Father. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it means giving up things that are dear to us, giving up things that are good in order to have what's best. So, Father, help us to trust in the process. Help us to lean into you. Help us to look at the life that you have planned for us. Help us to trust that you really know what's best for our lives. Help us to believe. Help us to obey. Give us the power to follow. Give us the power to submit and to surrender. Father, in doing so, we, just, we, we believe you, that you have our best interests at heart. We know that as a loving Heavenly Father, you would never ask us to do anything that's not for our ultimate good. 
So Father, help us to let go of ourselves, to let go of the reins of control of our own lives, the reins of control of our jobs and our finances, our relationships in this church and whatever it may be where we're not trusting you fully to just let go and to follow you where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.